This is Macro Horizons, episode 67, Mayday, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of May 4th. As the lockdowns begin to lift and many emerge from mandated hibernation, please stay safe and socially distant. views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the week just past, the Treasury market offered another remarkably in-range performance. We continue to focus on the levels of 54 basis points to 78 basis points in 10-year yields. And it turns out that the 60 to 65 basis point range has been well-traveled in the recent weeks as well. In that context, it's notable that equity markets continue to perform reasonably well, all things considered, having retraced a good portion of the losses experienced in May. Now, that isn't to say that it will be a straight shot to 3,000 in the S&P once again. Nonetheless, investors have taken some degree of solace from what appears to be incremental progress towards treatment of COVID-19. In addition, on the horizon will be several key reopenings across the country as the U.S. gets back to work. Market participants will surely be following the progress, the success, the lack thereof, as we try to get a better sense of the post-pandemic economic realities. This week's FOMC meeting left the market with the impression that the Fed continues to stand ready to act as necessary and with limitless QE still well in place for the foreseeable future, the notion that the Fed will at some point need to step back from emergency measures is a topic for some time far in the future. At present, some of the new programs, such as PPP and the Main Street program, will continue to be tracked for evidence that the support needed for many establishments to come out of the other side of the lockdown as going concerns is being met. The success, or lack thereof, of these programs won't be known for quite some time. However, uptake is important, as presumably it will impact the damage being done to the U.S. labor force. One of the primary debates currently in the market is whether or not financial markets are positioned for the second wave. We talk a little bit more about that during this episode, but our takeaway is that there is a significant amount of downside risk, both in terms of the real economy as well as potentially financial markets yet to be seen, even if that doesn't ultimately lead to another wholesale repricing. We do think that the lows for risk assets for the year are most likely in, although that does not imply that we cannot continue to see a leak lower in treasury yields, particularly the front end of the market, as the realities 
of a Fed on hold, effectively in perpetuity, continue to be reflected in investor sentiment. So the Fed came, the Fed went. What did we learn? One of the key takeaways from the FOMC meeting this week was that the Fed will not be limited to the scheduled meetings to announce big changes. In fact, the Fed event itself had very little new information. We did learn that the Fed was unwilling to put a numeric limit on the amount of QE that they're going to be doing this cycle. So limitless bond buying is still a thing, and I would expect that to persist going forward. The Fed had the opportunity to increase interest on excess reserves, but chose not to. And as a result, effective Fed funds continues to drift towards the lower bound. While such a move would have been more fine-tuning than necessarily true monetary policy, it is something that will remain on the radar in the coming months. We're certainly sympathetic to the decision not to disrupt the proverbial apple cart in the front end of the market, although we ultimately expect that this issue will be addressed at some point. Another key takeaway from this week was that the Fed is committed to providing credit to a variety of establishments. The expansion of the Main Street program illustrated this effort, although at the end of the day, risk assets and treasury yields remained relatively unfazed by pretty much everything out of the Fed. It turns out that the one thing that has been driving financial markets over the course of the last week or so, and frankly, the last five or six weeks, has been the pandemic and any progress toward a cure or at least treatment of COVID-19. There was some positive news midweek regarding a potential treatment that contributed to a more constructive sentiment in risk assets, and we saw equities continue to claw back the bulk of March's losses. It's notable that the NASDAQ was effectively trading at unchanged year-to-date, which is quite an accomplishment given everything that has changed in 2020. As far as the S&P 500, The 61.8% retracement level that we've been focused on, which comes in at 29.35, was achieved. We've seen a bit of a pullback, but the overall pace of the rebound in domestic stocks continues to raise questions about divergences. There's little disputing that equities and treasuries seem to be trading off of separate macro narratives. 10-year treasury yields managed to print 61 basis points, during every trading session since April 15th. That's saying something. It might simply be saying that the market is content with the amount of stimulus provided by the Fed and on the fiscal side, as well as a belief in the FOMC's commitment to keeping rates very low for a very long time. Yeah, Ian, and further to that point, and I think reinforcing the narrative of strong risk asset performance, was Powell's press conference and that commitment to do whatever it takes to offset the depths of the current recession certainly offered solace to risk assets and sentiment as a whole. His response to one of the questions on the potential for liftoff, yes, I was surprised he even used that word, showed that the conversation on the FOMC about potentially starting to remove some of this accommodation is so far down the road that it really just affirms this low for a very, very, very long time regime that we've been talking about and has translated to the current trading dynamics in treasuries and stocks to a certain extent. One other thing from the press conference that I found intriguing is multiple times Powell was asked, what other tools does the Fed have in its toolkit? And he responded with a fair, somewhat evasive answer of, 
This is something we're studying and we'll make a decision about in the coming months. One of the notably absent things from those tools was any use of the words negative rates. Now, I'm not entirely sure how to interpret this. The fact that he didn't come out and say there's no way we'll go to negative rates suggests that they're at least studying the possibility. However, the fact that he didn't provide any hint that that would be the case suggests that there's a pretty high bar. Moreover, multiple times he used the phrase effective lower bound, meaning that he believes the Fed has already cut to the effective lower bound, meaning that any cut beyond here would actually be self-defeating. So where does this leave us? Well, I sincerely think that the committee is studying and should be studying negative rates. It still seems like it's a very high bar, and it's something that the FOMC is going to make a decision on in the next few months. Well, there's an alternative interpretation, and that might just be as simple as Powell was trying to keep things positive. Laugh track. One of the questions that we've received over the course of the last week is how prepared are investors for a second wave, whether it's a second wave of economic damage from the pandemic or a second wave of COVID-19 cases. Now, it's an extremely good question, and there seems to be two schools of thought. One school assumes that the bounce in risk assets has entirely ignored what will transpire over the coming months once the real economy opens for business. Now, we're less convinced that investors don't see that risk on the horizon, and that puts us in the second school of thought, which is that the market is prepared for another leg lower in growth and another leg higher in COVID-19 stats. But the uncertainty is how big of a move are they ready for? If the second round of COVID-19 cases ends up being higher than the first, the market is also not prepared for that. What I would argue that the market is poised for is a spike after the initial flattening of the curve and to a large extent, a transition into a new normal that somewhat resembles the world in 2019, but is characterized by more conscientious behavior around infectious diseases and social distancing. Yeah, and further on that point, and something John highlighted earlier, is this past week, we've seen some real medical progress on the treatment for the disease. And while it's still too soon to discuss a full-fledged vaccine, the fact that we're now seeing some scientific breakthroughs, at least in my mind, lessens the probability that the second trough of the W, so to speak, will be deeper than the first. So back to the original question, while a second wave is certainly a risk, I also think it's important context that there is progress being made in the actual fight against the virus that lessens the probability of a second, third, fourth wave being as detrimental as the first. Given that progress, Ian, are you surprised at all that rates haven't started to drift a little bit higher rather than gravitating towards that 61 basis point level in tens? I'm actually not surprised at all that the treasury market has remained in a relatively tight range. Part of it is simply a reflection of the fact that the Fed has committed to keeping rates lower for the foreseeable future. The Fed, let us not forget, is in buying a limitless amount of bonds for the time being, although not infinite each week per se, the perception is that the FOMC will continue to be an important backstop. As the economic data has yet to reveal the extent of the recession in the first half of the year, I would expect that rates will continue to trade in this range for the next few weeks at least. 
What will ultimately drive sentiment in the treasury space will be the success and the progress of the reopening of the real economy. Now, that means that rates will be headline sensitive in the second half of May. But if we think about the bulk of the move so far in 2020, that really has been the case. The economic data has simply confirmed more or less the severity of the downturn. And another nuance on the reopening of the economy, on people emerging from lockdown, is the fact that some of these fiscal measures that we've seen have actually resulted in a higher take-home pay for those now unemployed than they were receiving before the pandemic hit. Is there a risk that larger discretionary income actually translates into a more material pickup in spending on the other side of this and everything that implies for inflation? First order, I think that makes sense. The logic being you have some people who are paid more, they weren't spending money, so there's this latent demand that's going to push up against disrupted supply chains. Sure, first order, that should be upward pressure on prices. I'm skeptical that's how it'll actually play out, and there are two main reasons for that. First, If you actually look at the sources of aggregate demand by income quintile, really 75% is driven by the top 40% of households. Almost 90% is driven by the top 60%. And the reason why that matters is those households that you talked about, Ben, whose incomes might have actually gone up after they filed for unemployment, they largely fall in that bottom 40% bucket. What this means to me is that you know, we're talking about 10, 15% of aggregate demand that might have a little bit of a pickup. Fair, but the other 90% are going to be a lot weaker. That kind of suggests that the actual impact on aggregate demand will be relatively small. The second point is more of a behavioral thought, and really it relies on the assumption that there's a risk of a second wave. If you're a household that's on the lower end of the income spectrum, sure, you're very happy that you've been able to get some elevated unemployment. However, You're concerned that if a second wave comes, you're going to be faced in a similarly difficult position. That means that you increase your savings rate to the extent possible, i.e. when the reopening happens, you don't go and spend all that extra money that you have. You try to rebuild your emergency buffer in case you have to utilize it again in the next few months. John, I think that is a very interesting take on it. When we look historically, the conventional wisdom has always suggested that the people in the lower income brackets have a higher tendency to spend every incremental dollar that they make, which is why we often look at issues such as minimum wage and average hourly earnings of the lower quartile as important indicators for incremental consumption. But to your point, I do think that the pandemic and the potential for a second wave certainly does add a degree of uncertainty into the equation. Speaking of reopenings of a type, Ben, we have quarterly refunding from the Treasury coming out on Wednesday. What are you expecting? Wait, wait. I thought they were refundings, not reopenings. We're opening the door to fun. Putting the fun back in funding. And bringing it back. Yes, Wednesday does hold the refunding announcement, and it will be one of the most interesting in recent memory, if for no other reason than the massive borrowing needs that Treasury needs to fulfill to fund this unprecedented stimulus that we've been talking about. And while we've already seen confirmation about the new 20-year bond, that'll be announced on May 14th, what will be especially of note will be how Treasury is thinking about the path of issuance going forward. Some discussion about new securities is certainly not off the table. It wouldn't be surprising to see a resumption of the discussion on an ultra-long, and it's also likely that more details on the rollout of a one-year sulfur floater will be implemented. 
to be sure, time will tell. This is a very long process, but it's safe to assume that the direction of auction sizes and treasury supply generally is only going up. Treasury issuance is still going up, even if the real economy has been put on pause. I haven't pushed pause, and I can't tell you how long. Yes, TV, I am still watching. And the next episode in five, four, three, two, one. Wait, I've been meaning to ask you guys. Did you also get the error message? No more new streaming content available? In the week ahead, the Treasury market will have incoming information in two key forms. The first being anecdotes about how the reopenings are going in different parts of the country. Now, the true economic informational value from such anecdotes might be circumspect at best. Nonetheless, it will provide incremental trading impetus for risk assets and presumably, at least on the margin, treasuries as well. We will also get a series of employment anecdotes between ADP and updated initial jobless claims, as well as some of the smaller regional surveys. By the time Friday's BLS report comes around, the market should have a pretty good sense for just how dismal non-farm payrolls will be. As it currently stands, the consensus estimate is for a decline of 22 million jobs. That is an astonishing figure. And while the error bands around that estimate are presumably very wide, the fact of the matter is the treasury market is unlikely to trade a miss in the millions. So anything between down 15 million and down 30 million will most likely lead to limited price action. Now, that's pretty counterintuitive and we'll be the first to concede that, but the fact of the matter is that the economic data has been so bad that the sticker shock itself takes the downside out of context. So what are the different implications between a negative 22 million print and a negative 27 million print? Frankly, at this point, it's nearly impossible for the market to know. What will remain more pivotal is how quickly those jobs are recovered and which jobs ultimately appear to be lost permanently. As a result, our expectations for trading in the treasury market haven't changed dramatically. We continue to focus on the range between 54 and 78 basis points in 10-year yields, with a special emphasis on a smaller range between 60 and 65. We think that the latter range could break ahead of non-farm payrolls, but even after payrolls, we expect that the broader range will remain intact. In terms of what it will take to break rates out of the present range, our attention will be squarely on developments in the treatment of COVID-19 and, of course, incoming information as to the spread of the disease once sections of the economy slowly start to reopen. We've made the observation several times in the past that the shape of the yield curve has become little more than a directional trade. And given that two's tens are roughly at 44 basis points at this moment, this is very consistent with the realities of the front end of the curve being locked to monetary policy expectations, the Fed's unwillingness to deliver a fine-tuning tweak to interest on excess reserves, and expectations that it will be a very, very long time before the Fed considers raising rates again. The range that we're tracking in twos tens is roughly 35 basis points to 55 basis points. Our bias is to continue to see a drift higher with a target of 55 basis points on any incremental reflationary impulse. 
We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And as the lockdown continues and binge-watching is replaced by binge-re-watching, we're reminded that top-shelf content is not contagious. Don't we know it? As evidenced by the lack of our call-up for primetime radio, if that's still a thing. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including without limitation any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interest in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.
Yeah, Ian, and further to that point, and I think reinforcing the narrative of strong risk asset performance was Powell's press conference and that commitment to do whatever it takes to minimize the depths of the current recession. Yeah, Ian, and further to that point, and I think reinforcing the narrative of strong risk asset performance was Powell's press conference. Was Powell's press conference and that commitment to continue to do whatever it takes to minimize the damage of the current recession. And that commitment to do whatever it takes to minimize the depths of the current recession certainly offered solace to risk assets. And that commitment to do whatever it takes and that commitment to do whatever it takes to offset the depths of the current recession certainly offered solace to risk assets. One more time from the top. Yeah, Ian, and further to that point, and I think reinforcing the narrative of strong equity performance was Powell's press conference and that commitment to do whatever it takes to offset the depths of the current recession certainly gave solace to risk assets.